How you living? How you living, fam? I keep coming back to this quotation. It's actually by a secular guy, a non-Christian. Shared it with you maybe a year ago. I want to share it with you again. I keep coming back to it. It's a secular philosopher, unbeliever named William Irvine. And he says this. He says, there is a danger that you will mislive. That despite all your activity, despite all the pleasant diversions you might have enjoyed while alive, you will end up living a bad life. There is, in other words, a danger that when you're on your deathbed, you'll look back and realize that you wasted your one chance at living. Instead of spending your life pursuing something genuinely valuable, you squandered it because you allowed yourself to be distracted by the various baubles, that is, trinkets or trifles, the various baubles life has to offer, end quote. So I see it as one of my goals as one of the pastors of this church is to help you not mislive. It's one of Jesus' goals as well. So we're in Matthew 25 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, you'll need one. Grab one in, in our seats there in front of you, page 780. Zooming out a little bit, we're in what's known as the Olivet Discourse. Jesus is teaching on the Mount of Olives. And remember, the disciples asked two questions back in chapter 24. Look there with me. 24, verse 1, as Jesus begins the teaching. Verses 1 to 3, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he said on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? So we saw back in the beginning of chapter 24 that the disciples asked two questions. One question about the end of the temple that he had predicted. We saw that in verses 1 to 35, Jesus said the end of the temple would come within your generation. At AD 70, that would happen. And then Jesus last week changed subjects in verse 36 and starts talking about the second part of their question. That day, the second coming, that Jesus has no idea. Even Jesus has no idea when it will come. And we're still in that section and we'll go till the end of chapter 25. Answering the disciples' second question, and Jesus not only answers it, he tells them how they ought to live as they wait. So let's consider kingdom stewardship this morning. Look at Matthew chapter 25, verse 14. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one, he gave five talents. To another, two to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had two talents made two talents more, but he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. So Jesus says, it's going to be like a man going on a journey, but what is the it? It's going to be like this. What's the it? Well, what has he been talking about most of the whole gospel, but certainly here lately, the kingdom, the kingdom of God. It's really the main message of Jesus. It's really the main message of the whole Bible. Look back at chapter 25, verse 1, as he has the parable of the ten virgins, then the kingdom of heaven will be like. And so he's still telling us about what the kingdom of heaven is like. 
This is what he's been discussing. Last week, we saw that virgins watch with vigilance. And now we're going to learn about stewards who work with diligence. So we're waiting for the second coming, but Christian waiting is never passive. And so a man goes on a long journey and trusts his wealth to three of his servants, five talents to one, two to another, one to another. And a talent is not what we think of when we hear talent. It's not like a skill or a certain aptitude. I think we often get confused about this parable because that par- a talent is money. And so the NIV translates talent as a bag of gold. And it was a lot of cash. It was around half a lifetime worth of earnings, 20 years worth of labor. That's what a talent is. So the five-talent guy, he goes and he puts the money to work, and he doubles his money. Verse 16 says that he went at once. This servant was eager to get to work. Any trades, that was, that was risky. There was risk involved. And he eagerly took risk with what the master had given him. Two-talent guy did the same. He doubled it. He got two more. But the one-talent guy buried his money. may sound weird to us, like a dog burying his bone in the backyard, but actually it was common practice then. There weren't banks, and so that was often what people would do to keep their money safe. And he wanted it. He wanted to keep it safe and sound, so he puts it in the ground. So let's consider each of these three servants and what we can learn from each of them. So first, the five-talent servant. Look at verse 19. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. So the master returns and he's going to settle accounts and this five-talent servant brought his ten talents and the master is delighted. Well done. We're not told specifically how he did it. I think that's intentional. Point is that he went to work for his master eagerly and produces fruit and the master commends his work. And the master says, because you were faithful over a little, the Lord will make you faithful over much. You've handled this small amount well, so I'm going to give you more responsibilities, but truly five talents wasn't a small amount. Five talents is considered a little, then much must be a massive responsibility. And notice the principle here. God rewards faithfulness. God blesses obedience. If we're faithful over a little, he will give us a lot. Faithful stewardship leads to more faithful stewardship. And so let's be faithful with what he's given us. And friends, it starts in the small things. Be faithful every day because what do our lives consist of but our days, as Annie Dillard reminds us. And so start today to be faithful. What is it? Is there something in your life that the Spirit of God has been urging you to do and you just keep putting it off? I don't know. Not yet. I'm not ready. Lord, is that you? But it just keeps on occurring. The Lord's been calling you to do something and you put it off. The Lord would say, do it today. Luther said, tomorrow's the devil's day. Don't procrastinate. Act. Be obedient. Be faithful in the small things. Start today. 
Start with the small stuff because, again, life is really mostly the small stuff and faithfulness in the small stuff accumulates over time. Faithfulness is like compound interest. Honor God in the small stuff. Seek to keep Christ central in the little moments because most of life is the little moments. And God will give you more. Authority flows to those who take responsibility. Those who are responsible are often granted with more responsibility. You know, young people, you may not feel like you have a whole lot you're able to steward at this point, not able to do a whole lot at this stage in your life, but let me just urge you to be faithful in what God has given you. Do what he's called you to do, which most of the time means doing what your parents call you to do. Be faithful over a little. He'll bless you with more. That's been the main theme, right? Look back at last week's passage, chapter 24, verse 45. He concludes, and who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. So the master says to the five-talent servant, well, you're blessed with a little, I'm going to give you more. And then the master tells the five-talent servant, enter into my joy. What's the result? Joy. Isn't that what you want? Isn't that what we all want? Think about it. Why do people do what people do? Usually, back of whatever it is they say, it's a desire to be happy. It's a quest for joy, for true joy. It's a desire to be content, to be satisfied. People work hard so that they might be happy. Whether it's status or power or money, they spend money to be happy. They pursue pleasure for happiness. They marry because they think it'll bring happiness. They divorce because they think it'll bring happiness. They buy things because they think it'll make them happy, whatever. It's why people do what they do. They want this joy that is only found at the master's side. French philosopher Blaise Pascal put it this way. He said, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both attended with different views. The will never takes the least step, but to this object, this is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. Because they think it's got to be better than what I'm experiencing now. Those who commit suicide think that death is better than life. And God wants you to be happy. He just wants you to be happy in him. Problem is, we look in the wrong places. Like a dog, you know, you ever had a dog on a leash and they just get all wrapped up around the pole. And they want to go forward. They're trying. We got to come in and untangle them and set them on the right path. God wants us to go forward. He just got to untangle us and put us on the right path. The early church father, Ignatius, said that sin is an unwillingness to trust that God's deepest desire is our happiness. And he knows that happiness comes from a life focused on glorifying him. But in our sin, we seek counterfeits. We seek the slum rather than the sea. Here's how the prophet Jeremiah put it. Chapter 2, verse 12, be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, 
and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. J.C. Ryle put it like this, you might as well try to make an elephant happy by feeding him with a grain of sand a day as try to satisfy that heart of yours with rank, riches, learning, idleness, or pleasure. It's a dead-end road. Joy is found at the master's presence. Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The master says, enter into my joy. The path to true joy is pursuing God. The path to true joy is serving him. Again, here's what Ryle says. I always will contend that imminent holiness and imminent usefulness, which is really what this parable is about, are most closely connected. That happiness and following the Lord fully go side by side. Flip back over a few chapters to Matthew chapter 16. Notice how Jesus calls how he describes his call to discipleship. Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Sounds really hard, right? Because it is. The cross is an instrument of execution. But he doesn't stop there. He gives us a reason in the next verse. He gives us the grounding in the next verse. That's what the for is there for. Verse 25, for, because whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Jesus knows that if you try to make your own life happy, you try to save your own life, you'll end up losing it. That's not the path to joy. But if you give your life up for the sake of Christ, you find it. Why? Because that's what you're made for. He knows best. He knows what he's doing with that which he has created and redeemed. He knows what we need. In church, we need him. There is no lasting and ultimate joy without him. He alone can comfort. He alone is the sun and without him there's only cold. He is the light. Apart from him, only darkness. He is the fountain. Without him we're parched. He is that living water we can drink and never thirst again. He is the bread of life. Outside of him, our hunger remains. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 6. The Lord commanded us. Here's God's commands. He's demanding things of his people. The Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always. All of God's commands are for your good. He's no killjoy. He just knows better. His commands are invitations to the good life. If he says no to something, it's not because he knows the alternative is good. No, he knows the alternative is better. His way is better. He's a good father. And so this five-talent servant is a good steward, and the master invites him into his joy. Don't you want to be a five-talent servant? 
Second, we have the two-talent servant. We have verse 22, Matthew 25. And he also had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I made two talents more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Same story with the two-talent service. The master gives the same commendation for the four talents and the ten talents. Two talents and the five talents. This is really instructive for us, isn't it? So we know that it's, it's not about ultimately the total. It's not about ultimately the results we see. You know what it is about? Faithful utilization, faithful stewardship. Not all are gifted the same. That's okay. The call is for you to use your talent maximally. It's not about results. It's about faithfulness. Flip back to Matthew chapter 13. You remember the parable of the soils? The various soils that the word is cast upon. There's a very interesting way that he ends the parable in chapter 13, verse 23. Speaking of the various kinds, and then we have the good soil. It's where we want to be. We want to have ears to hear. And Jesus says there at the end, as for what was sown on the good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case, a hundredfold, in another, 60, and in another, 30. And so all of it's good soil, but on that good soil, some are going to bear 30, some are going to bear 60, some are going to bear a hundredfold fruit, and God's sovereign over that. Your job's not to worry about results. God's going to handle all that. Your job is to apply yourself and your gifts fully, to live maximally for the glory of God in every area of your life, your thinking, your feeling, your living, your marriage, your parenting, your giving, your school, your serving, your time, your job, all of it. How you living, fam? And I don't know about you, but my prayer and my sweat is to be 100-fold fruitful. Don't you want to be the 100-fold fruitful? Third, you have the one-talent servant. Verse 24. He also had received the one-talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. So the one talent servant, he knows he's failed. He comes, he comes with excuses, doesn't he? <laughs> and friends, a hallmark of Christian maturity is a refusal to make excuses. Let me just say a word to what our culture calls teenagers, what we call adults in training. A particular temptation of yours is to make excuses. And I just want to urge you to slay that temptation. You're going to fail. You're going to drop balls. We're all sinners. We need to own it. We need to take responsibility, not blame shift, not make excuses, just refuse to make excuses. Rather, take responsibility, even as we say a lot as a church staff, if you're only guilty of the 2%, own 100% of that 
He comes in making excuses. And why? Well, at the end of the day, he tries to blame his master. What happens here is he misunderstands the nature of the master. He says, I knew you were a harsh man. I knew you were a taker. And so he was afraid. And so he just hit it in the grounds. Catch this. Misperception of the master leads to myopic mission. He didn't understand the nature and character of the master, and so he doesn't steward well. He mislives. He thinks short-term rather than long-term, and he's idle rather than active. His bad theology leads to laziness and bad stewardship. The best theology leads to diligent living, being sold out for the glory of God. Sound doctrine leads to faithful and fruitful lives. And so, friends, knowing the character and nature of our master is vital to our usefulness. Theology matters. Bad theology leads to bad living. And bad theology dishonors the master. If I came home and told Alicia, I came home and told Alicia, babe, I just love your beautiful jet black hair. You might think she'd be honored, and she might be if she had jet black hair. But my ill-informed praise, my ill-informed adoration is actually more insulting than honoring to her. Bad theology dishonors the master. We've got to know the character of the master. And it won't lead to fear like with this one-talent servant. No, it'll lead to freedom. It will not lead to laziness. It will not lead to idleness. It should lead to activity, grace-empowered activity. Not working to get some position of favor with God. No, working from the position of having favor with God because we've been justified by faith alone. It won't lead to idleness. It should lead to grace-empowered activity. It should lead to taking risks. This one-talent servant is paralyzed by fear, and so he plays it safe. But a religion concerned only with not doing anything is not the religion of Jesus. Biblical Christianity doesn't lead to fearful self-preservation, but to radical self-giving for the sake of Christ and his kingdom. How does the master respond? Verse 26. Matthew 25, verse 26. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servants. You knew that I reap where I'm not sown and gather where I have scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the 10 talents. For to everyone who has will more be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Harsh words. The master says, you wicked and lazy servants. He says, you knew that I harvest where I didn't sow. Then why didn't you get to work on my behalf? And so he takes that one bag and he gives it to the tin bag servant. That industrious worker for the kingdom is given the reward from the lazy kingdom servant. Incredible. Even what he had was taken away. And notice what was missing here. There was no commendation given. The master will not say well done to those who have not done well. The master tells no lies. 
And shockingly, he cast them out. Outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. He's judged for his lack of faithfulness and for his lack of fruitfulness. So church, it's important to remind ourselves that we will have a reckoning. So the way the King James Version translates verse 19, listen to the way King Jimmy puts it, after a long time, the Lord of those servants cometh and reckoneth with them. And so I would just ask, are you ready for the reckoning? There's no more important question in the world. Are you ready to face your master? Let me give you two questions to help. The first question is, are you a Christian? Or are you a one-talent servant who's headed for judgment? It's really uncomfortable for us to do. I realize that sometimes discomfort's the very thing the Holy Spirit will use in our lives, but the Bible commands us, God commands us to examine ourselves. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. We need to ask, am I a Christian? Am I actually born again? Why, why do I think I am? It's a good question to ask and to get that right because that very self-examination could lead to ultimately what saves us from being cast out. 1 Corinthians eleven thirty one. 31, if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. And so if you're not a Christian, turn to Christ today. It's faith and repentance. That's the call. It's turning from sin, turning to Christ. Trust in him and begin to follow him. That's the first question is, are you a Christian? But the second question, if you are a Christian, is, are you being a good steward of your talents? Notice the language he used in verse 14 of 25. He says, the kingdom will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. You have been entrusted by the creator really with everything you have. Everything you have is him entrusting it to you. You are a steward on his behalf and he's given you gifts. Maybe your school had gifted and talented. Probably all schools did. They may have gotten away with that by now because we've got to keep everything equal. But when I was in school, we had GT, gifted and talented. And uh, I went to Eula High School. The bar was a little lower. So I made it to GT. It was me and like 15 girls. I shouldn't have been in there. <laughs> but in the kingdom of Christ, everyone's GT. Everyone is gifted and talented. You've been entrusted with gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Every believer is gifted by the Spirit and every believer is called to steward their gift well. Whatever it is, can be your gifts, whatever it is. It can be your influence, it can be your service, it can be your finances, it can be your property, it can be your knowledge, it can be your skills, it can be your memory, it can be your passions, it can be your know-how, whatever it is. And so I would just ask, how are you stewarding what God has given you? It's all his. 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What do you have that you did not receive? Nothing. If you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not receive it? How are you living? Are you living sold out for Christ? Will he say, well done. Just take a life inventory with me right now. If he were to return right now, what would he say? What would he say about your life? 
What would he say about your priorities? What would he say about how you're arranging your life, how you're arranging your month, your week, your days? Let me ask it this way. Are you living a life that makes no sense without the gospel? Or are you living a life where your unbelieving neighbor could come in and he could do a life inventory on you and conclude, yeah, we're basically living the same way. Yes, yeah, not that much different. He goes to church on Sundays, but other than that, would an unbelieving friend come in and look at your use of your time and your use of your talents and your use of your treasures and conclude, yeah, we're really not that different. We're basically living for the same thing. Are you living the same way as people are living who do not profess that Jesus Christ is Lord? Or where they look at your life and examine your life and examine the way you spend your time and your talents and treasures and would they say, that dude's wasting his life. That, that gal right there, that makes no sense to me. Unbelievers should think that we're fools because of how much we live for Christ. Our lives should not make sense to them. There's this really fascinating line in 1 Corinthians 15. Here in a couple of weeks at Easter, we're going to spend some good time in 1 Corinthians 15. The whole chapter is about the resurrection, the resurrection of believers and the resurrection of Jesus. And Paul's basically saying to some people who were denying it, he's saying, look, if there is no resurrection, there's no point in any of this. If there is no resurrection, throw it all out. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, 16, he says, if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. No resurrection, throw it all out. And then in verse 19, listen to what he says. He says, and if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. Why does he say that? Saying if, if we're wrong about this Jesus thing, we are to be pitied by unbelievers. Now, if we live, we just live it up just like our pagan friends who don't believe in the resurrection, well, then we're not to be pitied. But if we have radically, at the root, working outward, if we have radically changed our life because of the resurrection and there is no resurrection, we're to be pitied. We wasted it. And so church, let's grow in living lives that make no sense without the gospel. Let's grow in living lives that make our unbelieving friends and family pity us. Because they don't know that this life is merely preparatory. If you're living sold out for Jesus, if you're not living sold out for Jesus, but you want to, where do you start? Pray. <laughs> just pray. It's a prayer God would love to. Lord, I'm just lukewarm here. My heart hasn't responded. I know I need to. I know better. Just pray. Ask the Lord to grab your hearts. Pray for fire in the bones. Pray for a renewed zeal and get in the word. If you're not in the word. There's no, no wonder. Get in the word. If you need a place to start, start with the book of Acts. 
Look of Acts where you see the Spirit poured out in Acts 2 in the early church with their, uncom- their committed and unflinching zeal for Christ. It will light your bones up. Prayerfully read the book of Acts. Carefully read the book of Romans and pray that the Spirit would light you up through the Word. It's a prayer He loves to answer. And if you're looking for practical ways to steer your heart, remember the Lord has given us a very practical way to steer the heart. Go back with me to the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6. Man, I just, I'm just not there. I don't, I'm not living sold out. I don't have a heart for the Lord, and it's got to begin with a heart. It'll never come to the hands if it doesn't first begin in the heart. Jesus gives us a practical way to steer our own heart. This is some of the most insightful teaching Jesus gave. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For, gives us a reason, because... Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure goes, your heart will follow. You become emotionally invested in that which you are financially invested in. Spending and giving, it trains the affections of the heart. We all know this. You come to value what you spend money on. And so you want more of a heart for God? You want more of a heart for the things of God? Jesus says, give and your heart will follow. Giving directs the hearts. And so pray and give for a heart sold out for Christ. Well, what's the main takeaway here? What's the main takeaway for us from this parable? It's do something. Do something for the kingdom of Christ. It's be industrious. Earn a return on your talents. Don't just talk. You know, we love theology and we love the Bible here. A danger for churches like us that love the Bible, love theology, is that we talk too much. Don't merely talk. We need to talk. But don't merely talk, talk, and then get busy. Don't merely sit, but get busy. What did the one talent person do wrong? Did Jesus say, well, he was an adulterer, he was a thief, he was a liar, he was a murderer, he was an abuser? Did Jesus say he did any of those things? Now, what is the indictment here? He did nothing. He was passive. He didn't do anything. Problem wasn't that he did something wrong. He simply did nothing at all. He was passive, lazy, and afraid because at the end of the day, he didn't know his master. Faithful stewards, we're waiting. Not with passivity, but diligent activity for the sake of the kingdom of Christ. May God give us the grace to do so more and more. Let's pray.